Startup and I'm launching my dear friend, Brooke Ritchie Babbage, called Fund Your Strategic Vision. This has been a few years in the making. It's a 12-week group coaching program designed to help executive directors gain strategic clarity and the plans and skills to fund it. If your organization is under $2 million a year and you feel confused, overwhelmed, or stressed about growing to the next level, this is for you. The card is open now and we're closing it on December 15th. The program starts in January. There are also fast action bonuses if you sign up early, like getting me and Brooke to personally review your plan if you sign up before December 7th. I'll put all of the information in the show notes to this episode. Hope to see you in the program. Welcome to Nonprofit Lowdown. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. Hey, podcast listeners, it's Rhea Wong with you once again with Nonprofit Lowdown. Today, we're talking about doing board D-E-I-A-B work right with Crystal Sherry and Dr. Renee Rubin-Ross. So we are going to hear about all the things. Welcome to both of you. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much. So just to give us a little bit of context, Crystal Cherry is the principal and CEO of The Board Pro, and Dr. Renee Rubin-Ross is the founder and CEO of The Ross Collective, which is a consulting firm. Tell us a little bit about yourselves and your path to this work. Renee, let's start with you. Sure. So... I think of myself as the kid in the back of the library who went as a small kid who did not feel included and always really started thinking about what is inclusion, who has, who is included, who has power. And bringing that forward a number of years in my work, I run the Cal State East Bay Nonprofit Management Certificate Program. I teach board development and my students who are a rainbow of people from Black, Indigenous, Latinx, all kinds of different backgrounds, asked me questions about board composition and really how do we do so much better in terms of shifting power? And that's really what got me to be interested in working with Crystal. And we'll tell you about the work that we're doing. But what's been exciting is that we are sharing this work with a lot of people and finding a lot of people who are interested in building boards that foster belonging. Yeah, yes. Hey, thanks, Renee. Hey, Ria. Yeah, I am excited to be here. I am a 23-year trained nonprofit fundraiser gone rogue. <laughs> I'm just we like the troublemakers and upstarts here at Nonprofit Lowdown. Yes, I'm a, I'm a professional troublemaker. So yeah, I have decided that I didn't want to do fundraising anymore, that I felt like my voice can be used in many other different ways and I have other talents and skills. In fact, I decided to use a lot of the talents and skills that I acquired and learned as a fundraiser to go into board work, right? And so everything that I do with boards in, te- in terms of teaching them about having a voice, learning how to recruit new members, how to onboard them how to build relationships, how to tell the story, how to advocate for mission, how to raise funds, all those things I was doing as a fundraiser anyway. So it was just kind of a natural transition for me to go over to working with boards. And I love it. And as Renee has mentioned, there's a lot of work in this space because a lot of our boards need help. Many of our boards are clueless. Many of our boards are ill-equipped. And certainly now a lot of our boards are searching for answers in terms of how do we bring our boards around, right? How do we bring in more diverse board members? How do we make them feel welcomed once they're here? How do we make them feel like they want to stay and that they belong in this space? 
And so the work that Renee and I do right now is relevant, it's exciting, and it seems to be resonating with the clients that we're working with. Yeah, absolutely. So Crystal, you and I had met actually because we were both speakers at a conference in Erie, Pennsylvania. Shout out to Keystone Conference. But I'd love to build on that because I think board diversity has always kind of been a topic. And then post George Floyd, I think, has become top of mind, front burner for a lot of people. And it feels like there's a bit of a a scramble. It's like, oh, this is an important thing to do now, but like we don't really know how to do it. So before we get into the details of how we might do it, what are some of the early signs that a board might be ready to engage in this kind of work? Because we know that it's not a matter of just like putting a bunch of folks on color on a board and calling it a day. There's work that has to be done before. So talk to me about what that looks like. Well, there are the subtle signs, and then there's the mass exodus of people (laughs) who are bouncing off the board angry and mad because... (laughs) because of the microaggressions and because they feel like they're being excluded. So that is the overt sign that, hey, wait a minute, something has gone awry. And then there are the subtle signs where people stop coming to meetings, people are not really engaged. We had a client who reached out to us. And I mean, as Crystal describes, what was happening was that there were several, there were some conversations, there were several women of color who left the board. There was nothing really too subtle about it. They did not feel comfortable. They did not feel a sense of belonging. We're all volunteering on these boards. And I think now more than ever, we're really thinking about, do I feel that people care about me, see me in all different kinds of ways? So there was a sense of urgency on this board to really shift their culture. And one thing, we talked to a prospective client and we said to him, well, Do you have a feeling of belonging on your board? And we talk about belonging compared to welcome. Welcome is kind of top down. Like, okay, everybody, I'm the leader. I'm welcoming you. Belonging is more of a circle. We each see each other and we each come into that circle and feel that there's, we are seen. And we said to this white man, is there a sense of belonging on your board? And he said, oh yeah, of course there is, of course. And then we said, well, how do you, and he said, well, I've asked my three friends and they feel that. They feel like they belong. And so some of this is really going beyond your usual suspects to, or let's say you're the, the three people that somebody might be used to talking to and widening the circle to assess, is there a sense of belonging here? So I'd love to build on that. How do you start to engage in this kind of conversation and this kind of work if people don't think that they have a problem? Right. To your point, Renee, about this white man, he's like, everything's great. It's fine. So what do you do when there might be a limited appetite for doing this kind of, because it's hard work and it takes a lot of effort and a lot of introspection. So there's always going to be some resistors. Most times when people reach out to us, it's because they do realize they have a problem, but it might be the board chair. It might be the executive director who's reaching out, but there might be some members on that board who don't feel that there's really reason for us to, to come in and work with them. So for them, this has to be voluntary work. We can't certainly force this work on anyone. And we saw during some of the clients that we were working, we saw that during some of our trainings, people just stopped coming those who felt too uncomfortable. And we tell people, you got to feel uncomfortable. It's okay. We've all been uncomfortable before. <laughs> and in fact, this comfort is necessary in order for us to grow. So you're going to have some people who are going to resist or who are going to stop coming. There's nothing we can do about those people, right? But for those people who are willing to sit it out, 
and say, okay, I'm not really sure I'm feeling this. I'm feeling a little weird, but I'm going to hang in there and just kind of see where it's going. We just tell them to sit still and let the process unfold. And what we find is like, for instance, with this one client we were working with, the board chair was very resistant. He didn't like the, when we were talking about white, white supremacy culture, he resisted all that. Then as time went on and we started doing some of the th- our work, he softened, right? And he realized, hey, wait a minute. There are a lot of things you guys are talking about that I've never thought about. I've never considered. I've never seen my board member in that light. And so he, he eventually came around. So I just say that for those who are resisting initially, if they just sit still and kind of let the process unfold, For the most part, you'll start to see people, the light bulb will come on and people will start to to engage. Sometimes people have different motivations. This is relational work. So as we work with a board over time, not in one session, but over, let's say, three to six months, it's about building relationships. And one of the parts of our process after we build trust is starting to share race stories and people share some information and stories about their lives that they really haven't had the opportunity to talk about. People of every white people, black people, Asian American, what is your experience of race? And we really we set it up in a very trusting way. And then what's happened from that? Actually people said we want to do more of this. <laughs> it's like okay, but what the reason for doing it is not to stop there. It's really to say, okay, now you have you're building your trust. And you want to go up to how do you make this into policies and system shifting systems in your organization? So, Renee, could you speak on that a little bit more? Because we talk a lot about shifting culture, but culture is read only, right? Culture is supported by practices and policies underneath it. So what are some of the ways or... Let's start with what are some of the policies that make people feel that they don't belong? And conversely, what are some of the policies that do make people feel that they Well, Crystal and I had a really interesting experience where there were some policies around how much vendors needed to outlay ahead of time. And it was really inequitable. And it seemed like a blind, it was something that happened with this organization that, that we experienced. And we started talking about in terms of what assumptions, like, okay, a vendor is supposed to put more than $1,000 on their credit card, a a vendor or consultant ahead of time. For some board members who are pretty wealthy, they may not think about that. And yet it is something that is, is inequitable. So how do you set up a policy where everybody feels like they can participate? We have, even in our work together, we have experienced some bias, and I would say I've I've felt different even in uh, working with Renee in how in some instances and in how she was treated and how I was treated. There were times when, in terms of travel, like Renee mentioned, there were times in terms of travel where we were asked to pay for our travel upfront, which I don't feel comfortable doing. I'm not in a position to put two thousand dollars on my credit card and wait for your 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 finance office to process my reimbursement thirty days later, right? And so I asked for payment upfront for them to book my travel and they resisted. And so there is a difference in terms of how we're treated. There is a difference because of the wealth gap in this country. I'm a single mom. I do this full time. So my funds are tied up in emergency funds in the event something happens for my family and my son. And I don't want to tie up credit cards paying travel for, for client for client use. And so we had a conversation and it was not comfortable and I had to call them out. 
And so it's just those kinds of things. And I'm a consultant. So imagine as a board member, being on a board where you're asked, okay, we're going to have our board retreat up in Montana. You live in Florida. We're going to Montana, which means more than likely your airfare is going to be high. Your travel is going to be high. Your lodging in the cabin in Montana is going to be high. And so it could be a couple thousand dollars. And you expect me to put that out and then wait to be reimbursed. And so those are the kinds of things that make people feel like, hmm, this may not be the right board for me. Mm, Yeah, that's a really good example. So talk to me a little bit. I think there's a really interesting, and I I almost want to imagine tension between you can either have diversity or you can have financial capacity, but you can't have both. Crystal, let's start with you. I'd love for you to dispel this myth for us. Absolutely. And I just hosted a panel of Latino professionals last week for National Hispanic Heritage Month, where we had Latino professionals who sit on boards who say that this myth about Latinos not being invited to be on boards because they don't have the means to make donations to the organization, right? That they they are perceived as receivers of charity as opposed to givers to charity. And they refuted that whole myth and just said, if we were asked more, if people took time to get to know us and realize that while we do have a lot of our resources diverted back to our families and our home countries, Many of us do have the resources to serve on board. You're just not asking. You're not interested. You don't see us. We're invisible. And so we know that this is not true. We know that there are people, people of color in every hue, Black, white, Asian, who have the means to serve on board. And it's just a matter of identifying those right folks. And then for those who don't even have the financial means, Renee and I have this conversation about giving debt. Those who don't have the financial, there's so many other things you can bring to a board, even if you don't have the financial capabilities to make a $5,000 donation. You have connections, you have in-kind resources, you have your own skills and your talents that you bring to a board that are worth a lot of money. (laughs) So this whole myth about people of color not having the money to to serve on the board or not having the resources or the connections to serve on the board, it, it needs to go away. And I just wanna say yes, Crystal and I are having an argument, an ongoing argument about giving yet, and we need to write up our, our argument into a blog post because we're just going back and forth. I think the challenge is we understand that nonprofits need funds in order to function. And so there is a temp- there's some kind of temptation to say, okay, we are going to have this give or get 5,000, 1,000, 10,000, whatever it is. At the same time, there, we have a, a wealth gap in our country. And so it's, it is fundamentally inequitable to expect that every single person is going to contribute the same amount. And so as Crystal says, are there other ways to contribute? Can you make, I, I personally do not, I support a meaningful contribution, I, but not necessarily a give and get. And yeah, it's, I mean, the challenge of, of contributing isn't just money. It's also time in some of the conversations that, that we've had with people some of it has been around we'd like to get to your meeting but we can't because we are working at that time so really thinking doing more listening to think about how can you bring in a wider participation and that's really some of that cultural work too not assuming everyone is like me and can just i think it's a it's a really excellent point because i actually remember having a board and scheduling meetings you know, after work because I had a largely professional board. And and like part of it is that a lot of the board members were older and their kids had grown up and I don't have children. So like it never occurred to me necessarily that at 6 p.m. it might be bath time and I would have to arrange for 
childcare. So I was like, oh, right, of course, right. <laughs> That's a thing. I'm curious, like, what's the debate going on between the two of you? Because I, I'd love to weigh into this debate. I'm sure I have opinions about this. <laughs> well, you know, I'm a form of fundraiser. So I know my mindset, right, is that I know that nonprofits need money, not only to serve the clients that they serve, but also to keep the lights on, to pay staff, right? To have software, to have, to be able to buy software, right? So that we can manage relationships with our donors, right? Because I've worked at many nonprofits where they say, well, we don't have the money. you got to invest in fundraising to yield the results and the fruit from fundraising. So my mindset is one that a lot of nonprofits rely on boards to make donations to the organizations. And so particularly for the, and most nonprofits in this country are small to mid-sized. They're not the big ones, right? They're not the big ones that have lots of money and lots of resources. So for the small, mid-grassroots nonprofits, those board donations can make a huge, if everyone makes their $1,000 or $3,000 or $5,000 donation at the beginning of the year, that gives that nonprofit some cash flow in the beginning of the year to kind of get things going until they can get their donors warmed up and get them in, in the cycle of giving. And so when your board is not giving, outside of the fact that it doesn't look good for foundations and all that kind of stuff, when your board is not giving, it doesn't show that they have skin in the game. It doesn't show that you put your money where your mouth is. And it shows that maybe they don't understand. The organization has, it's a business, just right. like you have to have employees and you have to burn lights and well, these days we don't have offices as much as we used to, but we used to have to have air conditioning and lights and all those kind of things, but human resources needs. All so is, is, is attention, Crystal, that you believe that every board member needs to give and at a certain level or what's the... I do. And I do think there's some organizations for whom they can say to be on our board, we're asking for $5,000. And that mm -hmm. means if you can't give it, then that's not the right board for you. But there are other boards who might say, just make a meaningful donation. So I believe both. I believe that, there are, that organizations have a right to put a minimum amount. And if that amount doesn't fit my budget, then I just need to move on to another organization. Renee says, well, uh, listen, I think we have to confront our history. And there is such a, everything from the GI Bill, suppressing the wealth of people of color. And if we, and so it's fundamentally unfair to say every single person, regardless of race, should contribute the same amount. Understanding that, that not everybody has had the same opportunity up to now. And so, but Here's yeah. the pushback, Rhea. Here's the pushback. So we say that, right? Everybody can make their own amount. So you got John, who's given $30,000, and you have Jim, who's given $1,000, right? Who's going to get the seat closest to the, to the podium when the gala happens? Right. So then, who so then we gotta shift our organization. I mean, yes. And who <laughs> we had our to drop everything for when the phone rings and we say, "Oh, John's on the phone." The thirty thousand dollar board member is on the phone, as opposed to the five hundred dollar. He's gonna put this, his stuff on hold so he can answer that thirty thousand dollar board member. Right. And so you start getting preferential treatment when you start seeing that there's some board members who can make huge donations. They get all the perks and the bennies. And then us little pe peasants who can only make $500 donations, right? We're just regular board members who don't get any perks and bennies. And I've seen it happen. So I think if we play the, even the playing field where we're all giving a thousand, we're all giving 5,000, then, and if you want to give more, you can, but at least I know I'm at the table with the same folks and we're all giving at the same level. I have just as much to say as anybody else. Oh my gosh, ladies, this is such a juicy topic. And the thing is, I actually, I can see both sides of it for sure. 
but I will say as a fundraiser, I'm on the crystal train here. Which is pay to play, y'all, because at the end of the day, if you can't give, we have an advisory board. Okay. Yes, and who's, I'm not going to be the one to say money. Listen, we had Armando Zumaya, who was on the panel last week, who said money is power, as Crystal is saying. I'm not saying I don't see that. I'm just saying I envision a different world over there somewhere where organizations really deeply value the contributions of all people, whatever they're bringing. Maybe we're not in that world yet, but I got to wish that we were. And I got to acknowledge to say that it's not unfair. I'm, I'm like crying because it is, it really is not fair. No, I, I agree. And the thing is, Renee, I talk about the messy middle, right? Like there is a world where we want like perfect harmony and equity and everyone is like kumbaya and it's like all good. I think we're not there yet. And I think we're kind of stumbling our way through like, what does it look like on the path to that world? And in the world that I live in, you got to keep the lights on. And I hear you, right? Because I, I would love a world where we value time as equally as we value money. Be great. But time, don't pay the bills. So I don't know. I, I It's this creative tension of like the world as I want it to be in the world as it is today. So, but I'm happy to weigh in on this conversation. Thank you, and you I, for that. And, and listen, I see, I can see both sides too. <laughs> I'm just going to keep talking about the world that I want to see because yes. I know many other people want to see it too. I and feel if we don't that. try to move there, then what's going to happen? Yeah. No, no, I, think, that, I <laughs> think that's a beautiful point. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about process. So when organizations sign up to work with both of you, what is different for them after the engagement? Like what are the, what's the transformation that I could expect as an organization? Crystal, let's start with you. Oh, let's see. I think I'm thinking about the, some of the clients that we've worked with afterwards who said, I, I, I'm talking about things I've never even thought about before in terms of my own family, because we do our whole exercise where we do race stories, when people start sharing about their background and where they grew up, how they were taught about race or not taught about race. So, and then people start saying, oh my goodness, I didn't know that about your background. I didn't know that about your tradition. And so people start looking at each other differently, like, oh, wow, I'm really starting to see who's sitting next to me at the board table. Right? And I'm also looking at myself because one of the things I, I challenge them to do is to take a selfie. Let's take a look at our own selves and see where you stand on some of these issues. And so I think after we, and then we do our race caucusing and I mean, we just do a whole, we have, we watch videos, we, we discuss articles. I mean, this is the whole big thing that we do. I, I think people start to really kind of see their common humanhood, if you will. I don't know if that sounds kind of geeky, but I think people just kind of realize, wait a minute, I'm same as Deepak. I'm same as Lindsay. We just grew up in two different ways, but we, we all want the same things. And in terms of inclusion and belonging, everybody wants to be seen. Everybody wants to know, okay, I'm a, I'm a single mom or I'm a mom of young children. And so therefore they're not going to have meetings at six o'clock on a Thursday evening when they know I have to run home and make dinner. Or I have elder parents that I'm taking care of. Or they're not going to have meetings way out in the suburb when I don't have a car. Like they see me, they know that I'm on this board and the things that matter to me matter to them. And those are the kinds of things that regardless of whether you grow up Deepak or you grow up Crystal or you grow up Christina, we all want those things we want to be seen. We worked with an organization and they were going through, they had a white founder and who was more old fashioned. She, she could not talk about race, even though the organization mostly served black and brown clients. 
And we got the board to, to start talking about race. They had this leadership transition and the person that they hired next was a woman of color as their executive director. And we felt like, wow, we really felt like this was a, a win for, the, for us and for the organization in the sense of definition of equity, people who are closest to the problems are weighing in on the solutions and systems are shifted. So, yeah. All right, Renee, I'd love to dig into that because post George Floyd, I think everyone was out here being like, we need to hire an executive director of color. And then what we saw is that they get hired and then they would quickly leave because it, it was not like they hadn't cleaned the house before they moved the new folks in. Right. So Renee, if you could speak a little bit about what does the board have to do in order to ready themselves and set up a, an executive director of color for success? Thank you so much for that point. I really appreciate it. You're absolutely. So this is the, the cultural work of starting to, we, I, I don't even like the word diversity because it doesn't really get you that far. I really use equity to say with the definition that I just gave, really think about how do we build a more equitable organization, society, community, all of that. So in terms of this organization, we didn't solve all problems, but we did get them talking about race, talking about race, racial inequities. And so it's doing that. You could do a, a, a demographic survey of your board and your clients and your staff, but then what does this mean? And what are the implications of that? And so starting to have those conversations. What the last step of our process after we've opened up the conversations is for them to build a plan because this is something that you're going to be talking about all of the time, right? Or at least a lot of the time. Crystal, anything to add? Yeah. And I think when you bring on a new person, particularly a person of color, I think that board chair and that new CEO, that new executive director, need to build a serious rapport and have some real come to Jesus talks about leadership of the organization. Because if you face it, the board chair and the CEO or the executive director have the two most important stakeholder groups of the organization, staff and board, right? And so if these two people are not working in tandem, if they cannot see one another and, and, and a vision for the organization and then model what that leadership looks like, right? That we do see each other. We do realize there's a white board chair and a black executive director and that matters and we see color. <laughs> we know that matters and they know each other and they're, and they're working, they're, they're having standard meetings and they really have come together on what their work should look like in the next year, three years, five years. I think that makes a huge difference. That relationship between those two top leaders can make a break organization. And so I think when you're going to start bringing in new people, you want to make sure that who you're bringing on, that there's an intentional effort to, for you to get to know each other and to build trust from the very start. So Crystal, talk me through this a little bit, because I think in thinking about the world that we want to live in, I, I don't know that we've seen many examples of organizations that have done DEI, AB well, right? Like what, is there an exemplar or is there like a framework that we can start working towards? Because I think we talk a lot about what it's not, but I don't know that I've seen examples of what it is. Does that make sense? 
Yeah. I mean, you have to decide. There are lots of DEI approaches. I mean, the one that Renee and I like is the Awake the Wolf to Work by Equity in the Center. And if folks get real weird about the word woke. Don't don't trip about that. Just let's focus on what that stage and what that lever means. Because we do believe, I do believe that nonprofit work, there's, there's this cog that moves, right? In order for this cog to move, every stakeholder group has to push their lever to make this thing move, right? And so if the board doesn't push their lever or if the staff doesn't push their lever, right, then this thing stops, everything freezes, right? And so I do believe that this Awake to Walk to Work model works for nonprofits when it comes to DEI, because it's just kind of, in the awake stage, it's just kind of this realization that, wait a minute, something is not right. Our numbers are off, right? We don't have the right people at the table. We need more people of color. We need more women. We need more people who are who are who have disabilities at this table, right? Or people who are from our community who are homeless or who have been homeless or who have been teenage moms at this. So it's just kind of a numbers thing, right? You disaggregate the data, you realize the numbers don't look right, you have representation. And then in that woke stage, you start putting things together. Okay, we need to look at take a look at our policies to see if there's inequities in them. Let's start doing some of that work. Put together a task force or whatever. I know the task force thing is, is kind of over, overrated, but put together a group of people who are willing to look at what's going on and start putting some things together. And then once we do that in the work stage, let's figure out how we're going to sustain it. Like, who, how are we going to make sure that we're doing what we said we were going to do? Are we going to have some kind of assessment at the end of the year? Is there somebody that's going to hold us accountable? So I think you just need to embrace whatever model works for you. I like the wake to woke work, the wake to woke to work model because I think it addresses all of the things that an organization needs to do when they're doing DEI work and helping them to center equity. Got it. So if I'm listening to both of you and I say, this sounds great, I'm ready to do it. Renee, can you walk us through what does an engagement look like? And I'm thinking really nitty gritty, like what is the time commitment? What is the frequency of meeting? Especially Crystal, you say you say task force and like, I'm, I'm getting like PTSD. I'm like, no, 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 please don't. And pricing. <laughs> right. So we, as, as Crystal mentioned, we start, well, first of all, we would always do a consult, kind of assess that readiness. I, I just wanted to say, just building on everything that's been said so far is like, we are really wanting to hear that people are interested in and open to shifting power. That is really the, the goal. So I, I was just, this isn't about statements. This is actually about shifting power in your organization. We do an assessment. We do the selfie. And so the, the whole process, somewhere between four to nine months, no, probably four to six months, and at least four or five meetings, starting with the assessment survey, share the data, reflect on it, talk it through, begin to do these race conversations of race stories that we model ourselves as a cross-race team. And then we do race caucus meetings where there's a white caucus that comes together, a BIPOC caucus that, that meet separately. And, for, and the idea is really to create some safety for each of those groups and for the, for the white people to be, be able to process whatever is coming up, knowing that the goal is really to move towards being a more equitable anti-racist organization. And then come back together and, and build a plan for the future. So that is, that's the, the process. We've done a lot of the work virtually and some of it in person. Some of often that last planning meeting in person. And so how long does that generally take? What number of hours are you asking? Because I know a lot of people feel like they can't get their boards to show up for the board work anyway. So adding something else on, I, I feel like they should know on the front end what they're really being asked to do. 
So this is a commitment, Rhea, and, and, and we hope the most of the nonprofits we work with have budgets of $2 million and up. Our fees are anywhere from ten dollars to $40,000, right, depending on what, what's needed of us. And so we hope that if you're willing to make that kind of financial investment, that, that your board is going to be there. It's, it's horrible to, to pay that kind of money and then board members not show up, right? And so it is a commitment. Renee and I do a lot of work up front. We, we do interviews. We do surveys. We're meeting with the executive director. We're meeting with the board chair. We're meeting with board members. So there's a lot of work on the front end before we even start the work. And then the prep work for Renee and I in terms of getting ready for our meetings, we do, I speak about bias. Renee speaks about white supremacy. And then we do our race caucusing groups where we separate the board by race. We do our race stories. And then in between, we give them homework. There are videos for them to watch. There are articles for them to review. And so it does require commitment to time. And if you're realizing that this is, this is a long journey, right? There's no end to this journey. And if you are really serious about making change with your board and with your nonprofit, that your folks are going to do this work along the way. So it's a lot of upfront time for Renee and I. We spend a lot of time reviewing those surveys. We put together a findings report after we review, our, review the surveys and do our interviews, we present that back to the client and say, this is what we're discovering at this stage. And so that we're, we're sharing back with them along the way while we're working with them, what we're seeing and what we're hearing. And so there's a lot of give and take on both ends. So it takes months and it also trying to get everybody's schedules together. And so if a holiday falls in or the summertime falls in, it could take, just drag things out, which is why it takes sometimes six months. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm just think, thinking about having to organize a board to do anything. is just a nightmare. But the thing that you're speaking about, which I think is just such a powerful tool is really around storytelling and narrative and sharing like, who am I? What are the stories that have shaped me as a person? And what are the stories that you can share with me so that I get to know and understand you as a person? Right. I just, I mean, we had someone who was Asian American who started talking about the racism that she had experienced. And there were people on the board who said, I never knew that that had been your experience and it was like this moment of oh wow i i re i'm really in my life and not in yours and how do we start doing that perspective taking so we can mm -hmm. have more empathy for each other which again the end empathy is not the end point but it yeah. is a real strong foundation yeah no, and i think the reason why this works for renee and i being a cross-race team helps in, in doing this work and not only that, our personalities are very different, right? So Renee grew up very differently than I did. She's mm -hmm. more conservative. She's come from a conservative white family. I'm from New York City. As you can see, I'm type A, kind of direct and bold. We talked about race and all the time. And so we kind of have a yin and yang thing going, but it works. We respect each other's backgrounds. We respect each other's lived experience and we're vulnerable. And that's mm -hmm. one of the things that we both decided when we started doing this work, that we were going to be competent right? And confident that we're going to help, but we will also be willing to share our own vulnerabilities about our own, in, in, our own feelings of whatever, insecurity yeah. or how we grew up. And so I think because of all that, it works for our clients. And you know, I have to say too, I really appreciate the fact that you're a, a cross-racial team, because I often think when I've seen people hire folks, it's, it's a lot of times a person of color going in, working with a predominantly white board. And I think as a as a white ally, it's important to be able to have those conversations and not depend on the person of color <laughs> to have to carry that emotional burden and labor because Lord knows I've been there too. All right, we have a question coming up from Deepak. Deepak, do you want to unmute yourself and enter the conversation? 
Sure. Thank you so much. And thank you both Crystal and Renee and Ria for hosting. My question is, and I've been lucky to work with organizations where I've been on the management team where it is truly diverse, not only in terms of race, but gender. We've had trans folks on management and on our board. So it's been a great experience, but I've also been at the opposite end of the spectrum where it is a predominantly older white dominated room and environment. And there is a conversation where, yes, oh, we need to do DEI work. And it's like, number 45 on the agenda list, right? And it's like, hey, we'll check the box on it, bring in the right person, everyone gets a session, we'll maybe have management go through the same type of training. And that's that's great that it's part of a conversation, it's great that it's made, <laughs> automated on the agenda, but how do you then have, or I look at it as an opportunity then to actually like get folks to convert to this type of work, right? And what have you both seen in those types of conversations where it's not necessarily resistance, but it's more apathy, which I think maybe sometimes is even worse, right? Because how do you actually get a true, true commitment to this work from typical white males that are just not thinking about this? They, they don't have that empathy. They're not thinking about it, right? So what have you seen in your conversations and your work that has been that have been the most effective methodologies to try to get the conversation to be more genuine and, and actually make a real and genuine impact? One of the things that we we did was we ha had a conversation with an arts organization about their mission and who they were serving. And they were based in a white neighborhood. And we started talking with them about what would it mean to have a pop-up exhibit in a Black area? And who are you trying to reach out to? And it was not an easy conversation, but it started to go to what is the mission? of your organization and who do you serve and how do you remain relevant into the future? And I think there is a lever for saying, okay, if you just keep serving the same, if you're a historically white organization, you keep serving the same white, small group of people, you may die out. And so it's like either change or die. Maybe that sounds harsh, but I mean, yeah. <laughs> And also determined, it's also determined by where the organization is located. So this arts organization that Renee is sharing about is in the deep south, right? And so that makes a huge difference. We've seen a difference with clients. So I've flown to California where Renee is and worked with clients there, a completely different kind of client, right? Much more liberal, much more progressive. And then you come down here to, I'm in Atlanta, we were down in Alabama, and you're going to get a completely different kind of client down there, right? Because of, of where they're, where they're, it is. So I think, and then on, on this board that we're mentioning, a lot of their board members were appointed by po political figures, right? And so that's a whole nother thing, right? I think it just depends. And so you're going to get more resistance sometimes in places like the Deep South, and sometimes you're not going to be able to reach people. But it was there where we had a Black board member stand up and say, I don't want to do this no more. I'm tired of trying to convince white people that I should be here. And if they don't want me on this board, I can go to another board. I mean, he got up and said that in the middle of the board meeting and everyone got quiet. And I was like, uh-oh, it's about to go down, right? And everybody was just real quiet and still. And, but it was kind of a moment. It was kind of a tipping point moment where everyone said, wow. And then the white folks started, started weighing in and saying, we didn't know you felt that way. And we were sorry that you felt that way. I didn't realize we were making you feel that way. So I think it just depends on the client. It depends on where the client is. And it depends on who's that, on that board. Every board is different. 
So if, if I could just sort of wrap that up with a bow, what I'm hearing from Renee is that maybe you also need to tie the work to something tangible that they care about, like survival, and also make it personal, right? Crystal, to your point, I'm sure that they didn't want their fellow board member to feel hurt or to feel excluded, but to make it really personal for them made it more of a sense of urgency for them rather than a box check. Is, would that be mm -hmm. a good summary Absolutely. of... Yes. All right, ladies, this has been so fun. So as we sign off, last two questions for me. I've been asking folks this. I'm sorry, I'm going to spring it on you, but I'm going to start with Crystal because she's a New Yorker. She's ready for anything. <laughs> you had a metaphorical billboard and you could put anything on the billboard to communicate to the world. What would be on your billboard? And then we're going to make sure to get your information about how to find out more about you if folks want to work with you. So Crystal, to you, what's on your billboard, friend? Oh, gosh. Oh, a message to the world? I'm going to say make the world a better place by, by giving back. Support a charity today. Support a cause today that's going to help change the lives of thousands of people. And then, by the way, if you need help with your board, contact the board pro. <laughs> New Yorkers, you, you always got to hustle. <laughs> no, but it would be a word of encouragement to give back because we give know back. that people who volunteer and give back make a huge difference for the world. And then they become donors. Right. But they also feel good about yourself. Actually, it's been proven that generosity and altruism help you live longer. So it's actually, I'm helping you. Help me help you. Right. I mean, and the compassion that we saw, the empathy and compassion that we've seen in the last couple of years with all the craziness that's gone on mm -hmm. has been tremendous. Yeah. And has made a huge difference. All right, Renee, to you, what's on your billboard? Oh, I got a lot of time to think. I would say, let's, build a shared future together oh, across race. You can go read Heather McGee. Yeah. All right. Let's build a shared future together. Okay, mm -hmm. folks. We want to work with you and find out more about the work. Is the board pro the best way to get in yeah, touch? The boardpro.com. Okay. Very good. Well, mine the is the, the Ross Collective. So yeah. Okay. The Ross Collective. We'll make sure to put that information in the show notes for podcast listeners. In the meantime, thank you, both of you, for all the good work that you're doing. Very you. needed. I'm sure you have more business that you can handle because <laughs> Lord knows this is a hot, hot topic. Thanks to everyone who joined the call. Have a great week. Oh, thank so great you. To talk. Thank you, Rhea. Hi, if you're a fan of Nonprofit Lowdown, you might be interested in my weekly free newsletter where I send out weekly inspiration for fundraising, notices about any upcoming events that I'm doing, and a cute dog picture. So check it out at riawong.com, R-A-G-A-W-O-N-G.com.